0: You folks have ministered to us this morning. It's been a delight to be here, and thank you uh, for that. So, do you want the good news first or the bad news? Bad news, okay? I actually don't have bad news to share with you this morning. I'm just finding out what kind of people you are here. But (laughs) the option that we select when confronted with that choice between good news and bad news may say something about our personality. There are some of us, by nature, who would choose to hear the good news first, so that the experience will end on a positive note. But I know there are others who may opt for the good news first to brace themselves as a way of handling the bad news. So our personality may drive our choice. Or our choice may be influenced by the setting. After all, who is it that is confronting us with this good news, bad news choice? Is it the orthodontist? Is it the mechanic at the local garage? Is it the accountant at tax time? Or Is it your teenager who has just stepped in the door? Our choice may change with the specific circumstances. When we're talking about the gospel, the good news is not properly understood unless we first know how bad the bad news is and why. To be told that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son does not truly make sense unless one knows that whoever does not believe is condemned already. Condemned because his works are evil and because he hates the light. And so, having delivered to Judah the bad news that all that there fathers had stored up would be carried to Babylon along with their descendants because of Judah's ongoing disobedience to God, the prophecy of Isaiah beginning in chapter 40 focuses more fully on the good news. And that's where we are this morning. Isaiah chapter 40, turn with me there please. If you're not there already, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 anticipates a happier time, a more blessed time for the nation of Judah, when the period of distress announced in chapter 39 and other places is over. We read in these first two verses, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God speaks here with those words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then in this chapter he goes on to enlist three voices to speak to the heart of Jerusalem with comforting news. The first voice in verses three through five declares a prophecy that three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include near the beginning of their accounts of the earthly ministry of Christ. You'll recognize these words as we read verses three and four. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. These gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, identify John the Baptist as the one preparing the way of the Lord, preparing for the coming of the Lord. The end of warfare, pardon for iniquity, A double measure of grace are found in the finished work of the one whom John introduced, Jesus Christ. The heart of this prophecy seems to be what we find in verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. While the writer of the fourth gospel does not directly cite this prophecy. He does testify in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And so we have this voice of comfort crying out with this news, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In verses 6 through 8, the second voice cries out, All flesh is as grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. Are you comforted yet by those words? On the surface it may seem that being reminded of our own mortality is hardly comforting. At times, it may seem that being reminded of the brevity of our lives is hardly necessary. Evidence of that fact may be staring back at us from the bathroom mirror, or from old prayer cards, or evidence of that fact may be written on the pages of a medical diagnosis. But the message of this second voice is indeed comforting in several ways. First, Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, the surrounding countryside that would once again see the invasion of a foreign army and feel the iron grip of Babylon's siege and watch helplessly in horror as their stored up treasures and their sons were carried off to a strange land. In these words, they are reminded that their oppressors were like the grass that withers and the flower that fades. The day would come when the breath of God would blow upon the Babylonians and the tempest would carry them off like stubble. There was not in their day, nor is there in our day, a king or a kingdom. There is not a president, a prime minister, or a political party that is not like the grass that withers and the flower that fades. Ah, but the word of our God will stand forever. The voice that had announced the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together tells us this in verse 5. We've read it a moment ago. The mouth of the Lord has spoken and now we're reminded the word of our God will stand forever. This, The message of this voice, that all flesh is as grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field, is comforting also in this that What it cries out concerning the oppressor is also true of the oppressed. The Babylonians weren't the only ones who were like the grass that withers and the flower that fades. Hezekiah, who once had been restored to good health from having been at the very point of death, would not live forever, neither will you nor I. But the word of our God will stand forever." As we encounter, as we near the end of our earthly lives, we have that promise, the word of our God will stand forever. When my grandchildren become grandparents themselves, the promises of God will be as true and as trustworthy as they were in Isaiah's day and as they are in our day. And that ought to comfort us. The third voice is summoned in verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God is the comforting message of that third voice. And that's what we do in the remainder of this chapter. We behold our God. As we continue on into verse 10, we behold a God of might. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. There's language in that verse that speaks of strength and of might. In Isaiah chapter 6, as you know, Isaiah beheld God in a heavenly setting, sitting upon a throne and attended by seraphim. But here in this verse, God acts on behalf of his people within the realm of their earthly experience. Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might. He enters into the earthly experience of his people and he secures them by his power. We sometimes say of an individual, he doesn't know his own strength. And maybe there are times when some of you are, are uh, in that situation and maybe you, you take the hand of someone else in greeting And as you grip their hand, maybe you see a wince on their face. And you realize, didn't know my own strength. I didn't exercise my strength properly. But the God we behold here in this chapter is not only a God of might, but he is a God of tenderness as well in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Whereas the verse before this contained the language of strength and of might, this verse contains language of tenderness and gentleness. The power of God which secures His people is also characterized by the tenderness that marks a faithful shepherd. His power is not harsh or overwhelming, but measured according to the condition of the sheep, administered with great care on behalf of his needy flock. As we continue on then into verses 12 through 17, we encounter a God, we behold a God of infinite wisdom. Who has measured The waters in the hollow of his hand. I'm so thankful for the music that's been a part of our service this morning, bringing us to these very questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The same God who tends his flock like a shepherd has designed the universe without needing the counsel of another. He sovereignly rules over it with ease. Among the nations of the earth, there is no one and nothing that rivals the infinite wisdom Of our God. We're called upon to behold an incomparable God in verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. In the next chapter, Isaiah will return to this Theme the subject of idol making and he'll talk about building an idol and then securing it in place, pegging it in place so that it will not fall over, so that this God will not fall on his face. Once while visiting a neighbor in our first ministry, the neighbor told me about a man who attended the same Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. When the group members were encouraged to select a higher power, God as you perceive him to be, the man in this story chose a favorite tree growing on his property to be his higher power. In whatever steps the program had that involved addressing a higher power found this man turning to his tree. But according to my neighbor, one night during a thunderstorm, this man's higher power was struck by lightning and reduced to a smoldering stump. Obviously, his higher power was not high enough. The God of the Bible, the God we are to behold, is not God as man perceives him to be, but God as he has revealed himself to be, And this is one of the texts in his word that very clearly reveals God. In a text in which he is revealing himself, and he's revealed himself to be an incomparable God. Incomparable, but not incomprehensible. For in verse 21, we are called upon to behold a knowable God. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The four questions asked in this verse each imply an affirmative answer. They're rhetorical questions. The one asking and the one being asked both know the answer to the question. Do you not know? Of course you do. Do you not hear? Yes, indeed. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Why, yes, it has. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? This isn't new news. These truths are not cleverly disguised or deeply hidden. They are not reserved for an elite few. God has revealed these truths. They can be known. They are to be known. I'm reminded of the picture that's given to us in Proverbs 1 verses 20 and 21 where wisdom is personified. We're told wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street she cries out At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. This is not the picture of hidden truth, but of truth begging to be heeded. The God of the Bible is a knowable God. In verse 22, we read, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon it and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God exists outside of the universe that he created For we behold a transcendent God. While he is present everywhere within creation, he is separate from creation. For a growing number of people today, the God in whom they believe is an impersonal God, a nebulous force whose existence, they think, is found in everything that we see or experience around us. The belief that God is found in everything around us is called pantheism. Everything is God. C.S. Lewis wrote in his day, the pantheist God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there if you wish for him like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. There is no danger at any time heaven and earth should flee away at his glance. That's not the God we behold in Isaiah 40. Far from seeing themselves like grasshoppers before an infinite transcendent God, today many of the inhabitants of the earth view their God as being like the grasshopper. He's small. While he is a transcendent God... We must not mistake transcendence for distance. For this chapter concludes by inviting us to behold a personal, powerful, God. Verse 26 and following says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these he who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. What do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? Again, the questions that are asked in verses 27 and 28 are rhetorical. The answers are implied to those questions. Jacob should not have spoken. Israel should not have said, they ought not to have thought, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Can we imagine them Saying those things, thinking those things, though, when they went through the things that Isaiah prophesied would come upon them as a nation. Yes, we can well imagine them, for we are tempted to think those same thoughts ourselves, to say those same words. Have we not thought, My way is hidden from the Lord? Have we not felt my right is disregarded by my God? And when the question is asked, why do you say that? Why do you think that? Again, that's a rhetorical question, for we know the answer to that. That is not true. My way is not hidden from the Lord. My right is not disregarded by my God. We must not think that the God who sits above the circle of the earth is so far removed from us that he is unaware of the details of our individual lives. We must not believe that our way is hidden from the Lord or that our right is disregarded by him. One writer has been quoted as saying, the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he is too great to care. The right one inference is that he is too great to fail. That's the right inference. So how am I to respond to the message of this chapter? There are those who would... Perhaps, look at the words that we have read, read what God has revealed about himself here, and say, big deal. John Piper sometimes uses the the phrase, God belittling sinners. I don't know if that's original with him, if he's borrowed that perhaps from Jonathan Edwards. But when I think about that, I think of that term, God belittling sinners. For God belittling sinners would look at this text and say, big deal. Or to look at this text and say, big deal, is to belittle God. You know, the story that I told about the man that my neighbor was telling me about and his higher power, that tree struck by lightning, etc. We see... The foolishness of that choice, that folks, when we, when we think of that choice or other examples of what is described of people crafting an idol, that is not simply a matter of ignorance and a foolishness. That's a matter of belittling the living God. That's a serious offense before him. How then am I to respond to the message of this chapter? Well, the text itself gives us several indications of how we ought to respond. We ought to respond with worship and waiting. Three times in verses 9 and 10, we are challenged to behold. Behold God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Behold, His reward is with Him. Beholding God leads us to worship Him. Warren Weersby defined worship as the adoring response of all that I am to all that God is. This text certainly sets before us a picture of who God is. How can we not respond? in awe and adoration. Regardless of the feeble attempt of this preacher to proclaim it, the greatness of God is made clear in this text itself. To bow in worship is the only appropriate response. Bowing in worship before God, before the God we behold in Isaiah 40, leads us to wait For him, as we read in verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting for the Lord has been described by one man as an unchanging relationship of expectation, patience, and trust. As the recipients of Isaiah's prophecy went through the difficulties foretold them as they went through the the time of, of, of trial, that time of discipline and punishment from the hand of God, they were to be characterized by expectation that God would do exactly as he promised them, that the day would come when there would be an end of this warfare, this period of Distress. There would come a day when iniquity was pardoned fully, when the right sacrifice was made. During that time, they needed to respond in patience and in trust. Does that describe how you respond? To the bad news circumstances of life. Do you have an unchanging relationship of expectation, patience, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? For you see, the comfort that is announced in this chapter is fulfilled in the person of Christ. We read this chapter Had the Lord Jesus Christ not come, this chapter would never have been fulfilled. It would be an empty promise. But this this comfort and the things foretold here are fulfilled in the person of Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 states, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so, if your response to Jesus Christ has been something other than to worship him and to wait for him, then today I call on you to repent and to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Father, take your word. Use it effectively, fruitfully in our lives for our good, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.